All right, we're going to pick up where we left off last time. We didn't get very far into prayer before we got a little bit off track, and I feel as though um, what we were talking about was profitable um, as we particularly kind of got dug into some of the elements of, of what we might call um, uh, standards and biblical decision making and such, which I think is profitable. Uh, there were some elements that, that I, I would generally desire to avoid in the class that we hit, particularly uh, you know, as we talk about different denominations, whatever it might be, um, one of the things that we, we recognize as we dig into the scriptures is that um, the scriptures are what they are, right? So the Bible says something and then it's our job to identify it, to, to uh, conform to it and believe it. And uh, no matter where we stand within the different you know, religious directions, uh, denominations, uh, churches, whatever it might be, um, no matter where we stand in that spectrum, the question is, are we obeying the Word of God? And when we take what our church teaches, when we take what um, we believe, when we take what we do, what our family does, and we put it next to the Word of God, what's right, what's wrong, are, uh, where, uh, where are we standing, where should we stand? And so when, when you start asking about a particular like last week, there were some you know, obviously questions about the Catholic Church and whatnot. That can muddy some of those waters where we feel like we have to get defensive rather than just understanding what the Bible says. And um, that's not necessarily what we ever need to be doing. However, again, I believe that the discussion ended up quite profitable um, in that we did dig down to some principles where we, we take the principles of the Word of God and we build them back up. Uh, into how it actually touches our lives. Uh, on that note as well, I did bring music. If any of you are interested in um, music, uh, what, what I have here, I think it's a, uh, there's 10 here and then there's one that's just music, not words. Um, uh, but there's 10 CDs there and uh, various different artists... Um, uh, the styles will be generally similar. There are a few different styles. This is what the church has. I, I have a lot more music that I would have loved to have kind of brought that's my own. Um, but what I, I'm, I'm very, um, copyright is very important to me. Uh, and I'm not about to just, you know, say, hey, go take this and keep it, whatever the case may be. I believe that as a believer, I need to be following the law and copyrights are the law. So this is the music that is the churches, and what there is is there's the disc, and then underneath it there's a burned copy. Uh, all the discs are going to be locked in this thing for as long as the burned copies are out, so that there's only one copy of it. I would ask that you not rip the music. Uh, to Well, if you rip it to a device to listen to it on the go or whatever, that's fine, but please delete it when you're done with it. Uh, bring the music back, and those discs will stay in there until either the CD comes back or I have your assurances that you've destroyed it so that we can be right with our copyrights and, and, and do what is right there. So the disc underneath is the disc that you, you can take if you want to, um, to uh, listen to any of that music. And some of it, you'll, you'll, if, if you're familiar with, with the Christian music scene, um, some of it will be familiar in that there is uh, a, a contingency of what we call modern Christian music that these artists have taken and they've rewritten them in a, uh, um, a fashion that's not as contemporary sounding. Um, what, what, I would, what we would describe as uh, conforming to the design of music that instills peace and harmony and those sorts of things. Um, 
then there's some others which would, would perhaps be familiar if you're familiar with hymns, but rewritten in a manner that is uh, a little bit more appealing to the modern ear. And what I found with a lot of this music is it is significantly more appealing to the modern ear than, say, uh, you know, a bunch of hymns that were written 200 years ago, even though perhaps some of the words are the same. It's still, much of it has the same richness um, that, you know, Greg was attempting to describe last week and that um, we um, would contend uh, exists. So if you want, uh, the, the discs are here, so you can kind of look on the back, see what is and what isn't. And if you want any of that, uh, to take any of that with you, by all means, please feel free to do so. Again, the copy, not the original. And uh, I'll go ahead and put this, uh, th- this one up here on, the, on, on this device is, is just music. So uh, if you want that one as well, just to have uh, the musical instruments, you can do that, although it would not necessarily be the fullest representation of what uh, I was trying to say last week. So you can, you can uh, grab those on your way out if you'd like. We are going to get back into prayer tonight, um, and we'd only gotten through just a little bit of what uh, is often called the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I like to call it the model prayer, and the reason why I like to call it the model prayer is while it is a prayer that the Lord taught, it's never a prayer that we actually explicitly hear the Lord pray. Um, The prayer that the Lord prays that we get the intimate details of what he prays is actually John 17. And um, the, the details of that prayer are um, uh, there in John 17. So I like to consider that one kind of the Lord's Prayer. I don't have a problem with the, the, the title of it is the Lord's Prayer. But it is a model prayer that, that Jesus uh, encouraged his disciples to understand. So we talked about those first phrases in chapter 11, verse 2 of Matthew, uh, or excuse me, of Luke. And this is on page, page 1 still. Um, uh, when ye pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. And the idea was that we recognize him to be our Father, the relationship that he's in heaven, that his name is sanctified, and that we're coming in agreement with him. We, we want what he wants. We want his priorities. We want his kingdom to come. He wa- we want his will to be done. Though it isn't done on this earth, um, we desire it to be so. And the second element there we see in... Um, in verse 3, give us day by day, or in the Matthew it would be give us this day, right? Give us day by day our daily bread. So the exhortation is that we pray for provision, that we pray for provision. Uh, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34, Jesus teaches on provision. And uh, it's, a, it's a tremendous passage of faith. And he says, therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body more than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment, for clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? Clothed. For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of these things, but seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. 
Now, Jesus is not saying here that I can just sit on the couch and eat potato chips and expect that God is going to take care of me and he's going to give me clothes and food and, and such. But what the Bible is saying is that these things are not to become a fret in our lives. That, if, um, it, that as we're trusting the Lord, the Lord will bring a, about the means by which for our general provision to be provided for. And we know that this is what he's saying because he likens it to the birds and he likens it to the flowers. The birds, they don't plant, they don't grow, and yet uh, they get food. And, and uh, then the, the flowers, they don't spin. In other words, they don't weave their own clothing, and yet they are clothed. The Lord clothes them in, in the beauty that they have. And, and so the idea here is that if you are a child of God and you trust the Lord and you're, you are walking with the Lord and you're prioritizing His priorities, then the rest of these things will come to you. Maybe not exactly what you would want, right? So um, the idea of provision may not be quite what you expect. Uh, it might be a lot of peanut butter and crackers and tuna instead of you know, something more lavish. But uh, the, the general implication is that the child of God will never lack for his, his basic necessities if he's maintaining a, a loyalty to the things of God first and foremost. If you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be added unto you. And we'll talk about this more when we get into the Christian and material possessions, which is our next one. But we tend to get this kind of we tend to reverse this. We say, I'm going to prioritize my life and then I'll give God the remainder. Whatever I have left over is God's. Whatever money I have left over, I'll, I'll consider you know, God's use for it. Whatever time I have left over, I'll consider church or I'll consider the church things. And uh, what Jesus teaches is that's backwards. I say I have to spend all of my time earning so that I can have the provision and then I can use my free time for the Lord. The Lord says, no, spend your time prioritizing me and then let me deal with the earning part. And that doesn't mean you're not going to work. That doesn't mean you're not going to, you know, God is going to provide the means by which for you to work, the means by which for you to have what you need. And it may not be the lifestyle, again, that you would uh, want in full because you're prioritizing other things, but you will not lack. And that's the promise that's given uh, to the believer, but we are to pray. And it's a prayer of, of recognition as much as it is a prayer of asking that the Lord would provide for us. Give us this day, give us today our daily bread. Day by day our daily bread. And it's, it's as much, a, and you'll see this a lot with prayer. It is as much an acknowledgement of what we, what we uh, know God has said He'll do for us as it is actually asking Him. At one point, We'll, we'll find that prayer is not to inform God. The Bible makes it very clear that we do not pray to inform God of our needs, that God knows what we need before we ask of it, and yet He still wants us to ask. And we'll, we'll give some illustrations that will perhaps make that clearer as we walk through. Uh, verse 4, And forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone that is indebted to us. So this is fellowship. This is the idea that I'm walking in fellowship. We talked about the, uh, the spirit and the flesh and the idea of walking in fellowship, confessing our sin, making sure we're right with the Lord. First uh, John 1, 8, 9 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us because everyone has sin. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And um, so the idea of walking in fellowship with the Lord uh, I cannot, the, the Lord will not, um, will not, He treats, God treats us in accordance with how we treat others. 
And this is a unique biblical principle. Now, when it says, forgive us our sins, this is not talking about eternal destruction. Uh, We've already laid out here that it is not our efforts, our merit, our worth, or our obligation that that brings us to salvation, right? It is the finished work of Jesus Christ alone on the cross that secures salvation. So we don't have to work for it. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to do those things in order to receive salvation because Jesus has already purchased it. So this is not talking about forgiveness unto salvation. This is, again, talking about forgiveness unto fellowship. That if I am withholding forgiveness from my brother, God is going to withhold from me that same thing. And this makes sense because I haven't confessed that sin. So there's something between me and God in that I'm harboring unforgiveness in my heart toward a brother. And in doing so, I have put something, more myself, between me and God. And uh, in doing so, he is going to treat me in the same manner that I am treating others. And that can be kind of a scary idea. That God treats us in a similar manner to the way that we treat others if we're not treating people well. And then the final part of this, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is praying for spiritual protection and empowerment. Uh, James 1 verses 13 to 15, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. So um, the Bible is not saying that God is the one that is tempting us. The scriptures say that, that God does not tempt man with sin. But what is being, as we say, lead us not into temptation is that you are praying for divine protection from the enemy. And you're, uh, which would be satanic deception and attack, and you're praying for um, also divine protection from scenarios within which you would even be tempted to, to fail. And uh, praying for that spiritual protection, praying for the power to overcome temptation when it comes our way. Um, 1 Corinthians 10.13 uh, says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you. To be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. That God never puts us into a a, a position, that God never allows a temptation into our lives, that he has not also provided the means by which for us to overcome it. Uh, Which again goes back to what we talk about in Romans 6, 7, and 8. We don't have to sin anymore. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you do not have to sin. And if you're sinning, it's because you are placing yourself ahead of God, you're walking in the flesh and not the spirit, you are prioritizing that which is wrong. And therefore you're walking into something for which God has given you complete provision to overcome. And so that's the model prayer. Any thoughts, questions on the model prayer? Uh, other things that we're commanded to pray for. Jesus gives these, these things that we should pray for. Other things uh, on page 2 at the bottom there. Um, in Luke 10 verse 2, he commands his disciples to pray for laborers into God's harvest. The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are pr- few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. So uh, we pray for the Lord to send men out to preach the gospel and that the, the, the gospel would go forth with power. Uh, the salvation of our leaders is something that the Bible commands us to pray for in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-4. through 4, Paul writes, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks 
So a supplication is asking uh, for a need or for the needs of others. Prayers, lifting up uh, others. Intercessions, standing between um, one person and God. Um, the idea that you're praying, God, don't levy your judgment upon that person for what they're doing and, and help them to see what's right. Uh, giving of thanks, thanking God for others. Uh, be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. So God wants us to pray for our leaders, and the purpose, the object of praying for our leaders is that they would be saved, but even more fundamentally that they would leave us alone so that we can serve God in good conscience without fear, uh, without fear of reprisal, without fear that, that they're going to hinder our capacity to do what we believe is right according to our conscience. And uh, if, you, if you're a student of history, you know that it's a very rare thing in history for the government to not have an opinion on uh, men's consciences and how they would desire to serve God. And uh, so we pray that we might live quiet and peaceable lives in godliness and honesty. That's one of the things our church prays for every week together in the morning service, um, that the Lord might have mercy and give us time to be, remain in freedom, uh, to have freedom of conscience, freedom to tell others of Christ without fear, freedom to do things like this, freedom to assemble, uh, which is something that many places around the world do not have. So that's what to pray. These are things that the Bible explicitly says that we should pray for. It doesn't mean we should only pray these things, but um, the Bible does explicitly encourage us to pray for these things. Next will be how to pray. That's always a big question. How do we pray? Um, I, uh, uh, we, we are continuing in Luke here. You know, so it just says 11.5 at the top. This is still Luke 11. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend? This is the top of page 4. And shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine is, uh, uh, in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And uh, he, and, excuse me, my mind drifted there for a moment. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. So, uh, the first way that we're supposed to pray is this word importunity. And I don't give you the definition here, but I will give you the definition. Importunity means uh, shamelessness. It means shamelessness. And so the idea of importunity, shamelessness, is that here you have a man, and culturally what's going on here is a man has a guest that comes at midnight. Now in Hebrew culture, it's extremely offensive for you to not be able to uh, show a, a guest hospitality. This is like one of the cardinal rules of Hebrew culture. You show hospitality. You're always ready for hospitality. And so this man, his, a guest comes and he has no bread. He has no means by which to feed his guest and this is shameful. So he goes to his neighbor and he begins banging on his neighbor's door at night saying, I need some bread. Wake up and, and lend me some bread so that I can feed my guest. 
And so this guy, typically how these houses would be built is that the main floor would be living and then the upper, upstairs would be sleeping and there'd be one room for sleeping and one room for living. So they're all asleep together. And the guy pokes out his window and he says, look, my kids are asleep. If I, I'm, I'm stepping over them, then they're waking up, then the wife is up, then everyone's grumpy, then nobody has a good day tomorrow because everyone is asleep. Go away, I'm not going to give you. But the guy keeps banging on the door. He is being shameless here. He is being brash. He needs something and he intends to get it. So he's just going to bang on the door and be absolutely shameless and a little bit annoying until he gets what he wants. And he says, even though he doesn't want to rise and give him because he's a friend. Yeah, they're friends, but he's, the, friendship is not enough to compel him to get out of bed and to wake up all his kids for this bread. Yet because of his shamelessness, his importunity, he'll get up and he'll give the guy bread just to shut him up, right? Just shut up, go away, leave me alone, leave my family alone. Now, the point here is not that we are, that God doesn't want to give us anything, that he's asleep and that we have to wake him up and then bang on his door until he gives us what, what we want. The point is not the, that, the point of this is not that God is the guy in bed. The point is that we should be, we should have the attitude of the guy coming, which is that it's not proper for me to knock on that door at night and wake up his family. It's not uh, I, I don't think I'm going to get it, or I, but I'm going to ask anyway. And um, my children do this sometimes. A lot of, if you want to understand prayer, just think about how children are with their parents. Uh, we'll, we'll, I'll give you so many children illustrations throughout prayer. So my children are this way sometimes. Um, they, they come up and they ask me for something. And they have no expectation that they're going to get it. You know, they've already gotten three treats today. And they come up and say, hey, Dad, can I have something sweet? They're just throwing it out there. You never know, right? And Dad says, sure. Now, when Dad says sure, he's gone through a whole process of, of evaluation, right? How good have my kids been today? How close is it to a meal? Did they eat all their last meal? Is there another meal coming? Is this going to ruin that? Is bedtime soon? Are they going to get hyper through bedtime? All of these things run through my mind, but I desire to bless my child. I want my child to, to, to be happy. And so if, if all of these things run through my mind, uh, is, it, you know, is it healthy enough or, or have they had too much today? How was uh, their last dentist appointment? All of these things, right? And if everything is good, well, then why wouldn't I? give to them. Even though my child, uh, one of my children might say, look, we've already gotten three trees today. Don't ask for another one. That's, that's crazy. Well, why not ask? If my, my father loves me, I might as well throw it out there. And that's the idea. You might as well throw it out there. If you, and, and we'll talk about some of the qualifications for prayer, but the idea being don't be af afraid to come to God with your desires. That's importunity. And this is immediately after this model prayer. This is what Jesus says. Ask. Ask shamelessly um, with the desire that you might receive the desire of your heart. Now, again, we'll put boundaries upon this in a little bit. Uh, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 says this. From whence come wars and fightings among you? This is not actually talking about like geopolitical wars. This is talking about wars among people. So um, uh, the, the arguments among people... Uh, also, the arguments among uh, the, m how money and provision can get in the way of cultures and of people. It can be geopolitical. It can also be just in the church, right? From whence come all this stuff? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that warn your members? Ye lust and ye have not. Ye kill and desire to have um, ye, and cannot obtain. Ye fight and ye war. It says ye sound a lot like geopolitical conflicts. Yes, except that James is, is actually 
by and large, a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus talked about how if you hate a man in your heart, you've killed him already, right? And so that's likely the idea here. James is talking to the church, and he's talking about how they want stuff. And that oftentimes our desire for stuff will lead to conflict. And he says, you fight and you war, yet you have not because you ask not. That's why you don't have. It's because you're not asking. You don't have any importunity. You ask and receive not, and this is the second important part, because you ask amiss. Because you're asking for the wrong stuff. Because you're asking uh, uh, for things that are cons- that to consume it upon your own lust. And you say, those almost sound like contradictory ideas. Ask shamelessly with importunity, but also um, uh, don't ask for things that are, uh, that, that, that are just consuming upon your lust. How do I know? And we'll pare that down. We'll pare down what, the process of prayer and how sometimes we pray not necessarily knowing if it's something that's just what we want or, or perhaps something that, that God would be willing to give us, but then even the process of prayer can help us through that as we're allowing the Spirit of God to work and we're listening. So we're supposed to pray with, pray with importunity, and Jesus makes that clear. He also uh, teaches in Luke 18 about praying with persistence uh, through another parable. He spake a parable unto them to this end that men ought always to pray and not to faint saying, There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterwards he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Again, Jesus is giving a parable here. And in these parables, the point, parables are not allegories. So in an allegory, a story that's an allegory, everything in the story has to represent something else, right? Um, if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress or any, any uh, of any Allegory. The idea is that everything is a one-to-one. Everything in the story represents something in real life, some spiritual idea. The physical ideas represent spiritual. Parables are not that way. Parables have one point, and the po- that one, everything else that surrounds it, it might represent something, it might not represent something, but it really isn't the, the, the point. All, everything in the parable exists to support one main point. So in Luke, 5, Luke 11, verse 5, 6, and 7, uh, that importunity parable, the point is not that God is like the angry friend who doesn't want to get out of bed. The point is only be like the one who's banging on the door, who's shameless. In this one, it's the same way. The point is not that God is like the unjust judge that doesn't care, that, that doesn't have any regard for you, the point is, be like the widow that, was, that would come every day. So the idea, judges, they used to sit at the gate. The gate was the place of business in these cities. Every city had a wall, and that wall had a gate, and the gate was the place of business. So the important and prominent people in the city would sit at the gate. So if you're reading the Old Testament, and the Bible says so-and-so sat at the gate of their city, that means they were somebody. That means that they were an important person in that city. They were influential. And the gate would be where business was transacted, and the gate would be where the judge would sit and would make rulings. So every day, the judge would come to the gate, and that woman would be there, that widow woman. She'd be there. She wants justice. So-and-so did something to her, and she demands justice. And the judge says, look, I don't care about you. I don't care about 
God. I don't care about justice. Leave me alone. And this happens every day. I don't care about you. You can't give me anything. You can't benefit me in any way. I just don't care about you. Go away. But she comes and every day she's there to the point where this guy says, even though I don't care about God and I don't care about her, she's bugging me so much that I'm going to give her what she wants so that she'll just go away. And again, that's not the attitude of God. Jesus even says that here. How much more will God avenge his own elect, the ones he loves, when we cry out unto him day and night? So the idea is that we are supposed to be persistent in prayer. We are supposed to be regular in prayer. That if there is something that we, that we need, that we desire, if there's something that is a desire of our heart, unless we know that we ought not pray, because it's, uh, if, if the Lord con- confirms that we're consuming it upon our own lust, then pray. And pray, always pray, don't faint, don't, don't get weary of your prayers. Well, it's been three years and God has not answered the prayer. You know, maybe you're praying for someone who's wayward. Uh, you've got a friend or a relative and they're, uh, they're, they're caught up in something that they should not be caught up in. And you've been praying for years that they'll get right. You'll be, you'll be, you've been praying for years that they'll, that they'll um, um, get right with God, that they'll, whatever it might be. You know, don't, don't be weary. Don't be weary in that. Keep going because God is listening. And uh, he calls for us to pray with faithfulness. First Thessalonians 5.17 says simply, pray without ceasing. Of course, that doesn't mean that you're praying all day. You can't just have your eyes closed walking around praying all day. But what you can do is be in a spirit of prayer. A running conversation between you and God. And this is something that is a good discipline to have in your life. That uh, when, when you're coming into, you're stepping into work, Lord, give me, g- give me a successful day. Give me wisdom. You're coming back home, Father, help me to be patient with my family when I step in the door. Uh, you, you, uh, you have a blessing. Just a quick, Father, thank you so much for that. Uh, you're, you're going through a trial, Father. Thank you that that you you are good to me, and I acknowledge your goodness in this. Uh, the the, the, the the opportunity to pray, prayer should be a constant thing. There should be a constant communication between you and God. And that's the idea of pray without ceasing. Be, be constant in prayer. Um, we're also to pray with humble boldness. Uh, importunity is kind of that idea of boldness. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all point tempted like as we and yet are yet without sin. In other words, we, we, Jesus is, is said to be our high priest. The Bible says there's one mediator between God and man, and it's the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the only one that stands between us and the Father. And uh, he stands only to usher us into the Father. And so he is called our great high priest, right? He's the one that gives us access to directly to God. And uh, the Bible says that he's not this distant God that can't understand what we've gone through. In fact, he's quite the opposite. And this is the power of Jesus having lived this life, having gone through the temptations, is that he was tempted. He was tempted with sin. He was tempted to uh, the, the, the 40 days in the wilderness and then the three temptations of Satan. He was tempted to go outside of God's will. He was tempted to provide for himself. He was tempted uh, to, to go outside of God's provision. He was tempted to preempt God's timing. He was tempted to do things his own way. And yet in all things, he aligned himself with the Father. And so when I go to God and I say, God, I'm just really struggling here. I'm really struggling because I'm frustrated or I'm tired or I, I don't understand. I don't, I don't have the wisdom to deal with this. I, I don't think I can handle this. Whatever it might be, what we can know is that the one who's interceding for us that stands between us and the Father, who is the man Christ Jesus, 
he knows exactly what we're talking about. He can relate. Can we put it that way? How many gods of religions can relate to mankind? And yet our Savior can because he is a man. Um, so verse 16 says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Go boldly because we can. Because he knows. Because he understands. The idea, I'm not worthy, but I have no one else to turn to, is kind of the idea. Um, and we see this in, in Hebrews 10, verses 18 through 22. Uh, now where, where remissions of these is, there's no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, that would be Christ, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, that would be uh, confess sin between us and God, and our bodies washed with pure water, an intention of doing that which is right. So, once again, the idea that we are to enter boldly into his presence. We are to come. Now, boldness does not mean uh, disrespect, right? Uh, the, the idea that we come disrespectfully to God or, um, or not reverently to God is foreign to scripture. Uh, we, we come to the king because we have access to come to the king through Christ, but we're still coming to the king, right? Which means there's still an expectation of reverence, of honor, of worth that is to be shown him, uh, and that's something that we should not fail. We, we need to be careful that we don't, um, that we don't show a reverence to God, and this is something that, that we can uh, have a tendency to do, particularly as you get into um, certain elements of the church. Um, they see God as, if I can just use the term, a buddy. Uh, and we need to be careful with that mindset. He, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is our friend. Jesus said, I call you my friends. Um, and yet, as we access God, uh, the Bible says that we are coming into the holiest, right? The holy of holies, that place that was only allowed to go into once a year in the Jewish culture. When Jesus died on the cross and he said, it is finished, the Bible says that the veil that separated the, the temple, which only the priests were allowed to go into, with the Holy of Holies, that only the high priest could go into once a year, it was torn in half, indicating, Hebrews tells us, that the way into the Holy of Holies was now open to us. But just because the way is open doesn't mean I'm going to go in in my pajamas and flip-flops, right? Uh, and I'm not saying that in, uh, it's metaphorically, right? Just because the way is open does not mean I ought not go reverently. It does not mean I ought not care. Just because now the doors are open. And that's the idea here. But we should come in boldness. Just humble boldness. Because we need his help. We don't deserve his help, but we need it. We should come in Jesus' name. Uh, John 14, 12-14. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me... The works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Uh, John fifteen sixteen says a similar idea. Um, whatsoever ye shall ask in my Father's name, he may give it, that he may give it to you. Um, John sixteen twenty three through 26, similar idea as well. Um, verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto 
Have ye asked nothing in my name? Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs. But the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. And that day ye shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. So, um, this is important, the idea of asking in Jesus' name. Now, this is more than just invoking the five letters of his name. When, when we talk about uh, a name... Um, the idea of, of a name is more than just a moniker, right? My name is Jamin, but when, when, you, when you hear the name Jamin or Jamin Wickler uh, to, to give it a specific person, things come to your mind, right? Uh, when you think of a name, the, the elements of their character or what they've done come to your mind. Uh, it, it, it evokes a response in you based upon who you understand them to be and what they have done. And the idea of Jesus' name. Now, I do, not, I do not presuppose that the name actually invoking the name of Jesus Christ has no power. But the idea that the name of Jesus Christ is some sort of lucky rabbit's foot, that we invoke it and then it's like our, our, our you know, get out of jail free card, is not it either. So if I say so-and-so has a good name in the community, the idea of having a good name in the community is a reputation, Right. It is the basis of everything that you've done, all of your works or all of your efforts that compile together to say he has a good name. So to, to come to the Father, to, to come to the Father in the name of the Son uh, invokes the idea that you are coming in alignment with who Christ is. You are coming through his authority. You are saying that Jesus Christ is the, that, that because I'm under the blood of Jesus Christ, because I've accepted Christ as my Savior, I have the authority to come into your presence. Um, and that is, as far as prayer is concerned, the idea, which is uh, completely substantiated by what we just saw in Hebrews, that we come boldly into the throne of grace because we have a high priest, right? So uh, essentially the high priest is my credential card, that I come to the, the door of the gates of prayer and I show that I'm in Christ and they say, you can come in, you can access the Father. And that idea that I'm coming in the name of the Son is that, that idea, that we are appealing to the authority of Christ, we're appealing to the power of Christ, we're appealing to what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross as the means by which for us to have any right to bring our requests unto God himself. Again, that being said, that doesn't mean that the name of Jesus Christ has no power. Um, we, if, if you've ever read about demonic encounters, um, there are many a time uh, where a demonic encounter, encounter is cut short by crying out to the name of Jesus, um, by, by invoking the name of Jesus, even among unbelievers. Um, and that is something that, that I would fully believe to be valid. Uh, however, we also do see an example in Scripture with um, the seven sons of Sceva. And uh, there's a, a situation where um, there's a, a group of men and there was a, a man who was... Um, possessed by demons. And these men come to this one possessed by demons and they say, in the name of Paul and in the name of Jesus, we command you to come out of this man. And the demon replies to these men, well, I know the name of Paul and I know the name of Jesus, but I don't know your name. And then the demons attack them and actually beat them up, tore them up, and they ran away wounded and naked. So the name of Jesus in and of itself is not a explicit you know, and, and explicit that, that just by invoking the name, that means there's power. But rather that when you invoke the name in his power, 
if you invoke his reputation, if you actually in faith, by faith, invoke who he is, that's where the power comes from. And um, so we pray in Jesus' name. Now again, if, 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 uh, depending on your church background and whatnot, oftentimes at the end of my prayers, I will say in Jesus' name, amen. And that is not, that, that's, that's me declaring that I, am inten- uh, that I am, it's my intention to pray in his name. That is not actually in his name, right? That's just invoking the words. And the words are only as good as the intent, the power, the substance behind it, that I am actually in faith coming in the name of Jesus Christ, invoking who he is, his authority, and desiring to uh, compel the Father or um, desiring to uh, approach the Father through Jesus Christ himself. Uh, So if a person does not add in Jesus' name, uh, that doesn't mean he's not praying in Jesus' name uh, implicitly. It's uh, more or less something that we do partially traditionally, partially as a means by which to um, teach that and remember that that is the way that we're supposed to come to God. Seeking God's will. And this is the important other, other half of this coin when we talk about in Jesus' name. Luke twenty two forty two 42 says, um, this is Jesus in the garden. If thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I just preached a message in church not long ago on that passage, and I absolutely love it because here's Jesus, right? The Son of God who has never been out of fellowship with the Father in the history of history. And he's on his knees begging God that he would not have to go to the cross and bear your, pun- your, your sin and my sin. He didn't want to go to the cross. And he asked God, if there's any possible way that I cannot go to the cross and still fulfill your will, let it, let, let's do that. And then he goes and he sees his disciples sleeping and he tells them, wake up, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. And then he goes back and the Bible says the next time he gets down on his knees, he prays, Lord, if, it, if it's not possible that this cup pass from me, not my will, but thy will be done. And so the process of prayer is actually a part of him conforming his heart to God's heart. Conforming his heart to the will of the Father. That as he prays for his desire, he is also releasing his desires to the Father and saying, but Father, at the end of the day, what I really want is your will to be done. And if this is what must be done, then this is what I'm going to do. And he has prepared his heart for the will of the Father by the manner in which he's praying and the the desire, I've laid my request at the feet of the Father. Now it's up to the Father, right? So again, my daughters, uh, my my daughter comes up to me and says, hey, Daddy, can, can we have a treat after dinner? And I'll look at them and I'll say, okay, you've made your request. I will think about it. At that point, if I tell them you've made your request, what I'm telling them is I don't want to hear about it again (laughs) because you don't need to be badgering me. I know what you want and now I'm thinking about it. And if my daughter trusts me and loves me and trusts my intentions for her, then she should be able to walk away and say, Dad knows, I can trust him. And then if if she does not get a treat after dinner, then she should be 100% okay with that. Because she knows how much dad loves her and that if dad thought that that she ought to get a treat or that he wants her to have a treat, he will give her a treat. But that she knows that I love her so much that the only reason why I would not give her a treat is if I had a good reason. And so she's more than happy and content to not have a treat because she trusts her father. And this is the idea. Jesus laid his request before the father and now... His heart is fully resolved to whatever the Lord would choose because he's laid his request before the one who loves him. 
And if the one who loves him says, no, you have to go to the cross, then that's what's best for him. If the one who loves him has another way, then he has, with importunity, shamelessly, <laughs> even though he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, he has shamelessly laid his request before the Father. I don't want to go to the cross, even though this is your eternal purpose. Is there another way that your will can be accomplished without me having to go to the cross? That's the idea. Great example of prayer. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And we know that if he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions we desired of him. So once again, we see this layer that says that when we ask, we are to ask in accordance with his will. I don't know what his will is. Well, that's why you pray. You pray and you seek his will. You also pray. Uh, and then once you get to the point where through prayer, through um, hearing from the Spirit, through counsel, all of the different things, through the Word of God, uh, once all of those things line up and then you pray a prayer and then the Lord gives you the desire of his heart as your will is, aligns with his will. So uh, my daughters, right? We go to the, the, the state fair and my daughters say, hey, Dad, can we have such and such food? And I say, that food is ex outrageously expensive. I could feed you for an entire day on what that you know, fried Snickers is going to cost me. I'm absolutely not going to do that. So my child requests something from me and gets a, no, this is not Dad's will. So my child could either say, well, I'm not going to ask Dad for anything anymore because he said no to me. Or they can say, well, maybe I should learn from this something about the character of my father, and then I should adjust my asking to conform to the character of my father, right, to his will. So if, the, if, if they ask for a, 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 a treat at the state fair and I say, no, it's too expensive, then the child starts saying, what is a desire of my heart that might conform to the will of, of dad. So now they're driving home and say, hey dad, since we didn't get a treat at the state fair, could we stop by McDonald's and get an ice cream cone? Well, a McDonald's ice cream cone is significantly cheaper than whatever it was at the state fair. And dad says, yes, we can do that. Now my children have a template, a baseline of, of their father's will, right? I asked for this and the father said no, and I discerned the reason why, and so I altered my request to get the desire of my heart within the context of what my father desires. And if dad says no again, then I say, well, because I know my dad loves me and I know he wants to bless me. And we'll talk about this more, I think, I hope. I, I, uh, I hope I've got it in here somewhere. Uh, because I know that my, my father loves me and wants to bless me, if he says no, then I'm assuming it's because it's not what's best for me. Or it's because I didn't do a good job and there's a consequence to that, right? Sometimes it's absolutely I can't give you what you're asking for because you've been horrible today and I can't, I can't con confirm you in your terrible, in your terrible actions with, with a reward. Uh, so one way or another, I, I, as the child, can discern the will of the Father even through the process of prayer and asking. And so we ask things according to his will. And we know that if he hears us because we're asking according to his will, that we'll get the, the petitions we desired of him. Uh, we're to ask in faith. Uh, I've been rolling pretty quickly here. Any thoughts, questions? Um, there's still a lot more to cover. Uh, and some of your questions might be rounded out as we, as we do so. Um, faith. Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, if ye have faith and doubt not, ye shall not only do this, which is 
um, done to the fig tree. He had cursed the fig tree. But also if he shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all things whatsoever ye ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. So uh, if, if, you can if, if you can acknowledge that something is of the Lord, that it is the Lord's will, and you have the faith, the Bible says you'll receive it. Now once again, this is not, I have enough faith to believe I'm going to have a billion dollars on my doorstep when I get home, and so it's going to happen because of all the other template elements of prayer, right? Am I asking to consume it upon my own lust? Because James says you have not because you ask not, but you ask and receive not because you're trying to consume it upon your own lust. You have the wrong motives. Uh, your, your motives are entirely self-serving and entirely for, for non-righteous purposes. God's not going to answer those prayers. God's not going to answer prayers that enable my, that, 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 that lead me into sin. Uh, he's not going to give me that. So I can't, uh, I, I, you know, if, if I start praying, God, give me a mistress, uh, God's not going to answer that prayer. If that prayer. If that prayer is answered, it's probably because you prayed it out loud and a demon heard it. And so he's wanting to give you that mistress or it's you self-fulfilling your own prophecy, right? Because God's not going to give me a mistress because I'm to be the husband of one wife, right? So, so I'm, I, the, the idea here is not that if I have enough faith, anything is possible, but, but that when I pray for the things that are in line with the Lord's will, that would be the desires of his heart or with, with importunity seeking his desires, um, that... If that, that faith can hinder the capacity for me to receive those things if I don't have enough faith um, to, to actually believe that God can and will do it. Um, yeah, I, I don't, uh, I thought, thought I'll, I'll hold off on an illustration for a moment there. Um, yes, sir. So, Jamie, quick question. How do you counsel, like, or, you know, talk to people that have really hard things that they go through in life, you know? Again, I was, I was raised a Christian. I, I firmly believe everything you just said to my very core that, that everything that happens to us is in God's will. He gives us what we can handle. Mm -hmm. if, if he didn't answer a certain prayer, it's because there's, he has another uh, direction for us and we we're just not aware of it. What if somebody does experience that? A child has cancer, you know, yeah. the real tough stuff. Because this is, that's the message. It's like this is, that was God's direction. And I would certain situations they do not want to do that. Right. You know, so. right. So um, we, as we consider the idea of what about tragedy? Child has cancer. Child is molested. Uh, are you telling me that God wanted that to happen? No. Uh, it, was it outside of God's control? No. But what it, was it within his perfect will? No. And the idea that because, because everything is in, uh, under God's control means that everything is God's will uh, is actually a, a, an, an incorrect leap. So uh, you, you have the idea that you're praying for, uh, your child has cancer and you're praying that God would heal them of that cancer and that prayer does not come to pass. I had the faith, I asked with importunity, which means, and this is what that would mean, that means it's not the Lord's will, right? That that child be healed of cancer. Um, because you prayed, you prayed with faith, you prayed with importunity, you prayed with persistence, and it, it's not the Lord's will that that would take place. How do you reconcile that? Uh, and the, the best answer here from our last class, if you remember, is the book of Job. And in the book of Job, um, Satan comes before God and says, uh, uh, and God says, where have you been? And he says, I've been to going to and from 
I've been throughout the whole earth, and, and God says, well, hey, have you considered my servant Job? He's faithful, and there's none like him in all the earth that escheweth evil and doeth, doeth well. And uh, Satan says, well, here's the problem, God. You've protected him. You've put a, a hedge of protection about him. I can't touch him. And uh, if I could touch him, because Satan is called the great accuser, so he's in the heavens accusing us. If I could touch him, if I could touch his, his circumstances, then, I, then he, he wouldn't serve you. He's only serving you because of how good you've been to him. He would not serve you if, if he lost everything. So God says you can have everything but his body. And so we find over that, the rest of this chapter that Job loses ten children, that he loses pretty much all of his wealth, that it's all taken away from him in a matter of, a, uh, of as the Bible tells it, a day. Uh, he has a servant come and say, hey, all of your camels have been stolen. Another comes and says, hey, all of your sheep have been stolen. And then finally, the last one comes and says, hey, all of your children have just been killed. Uh, 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 the house collapsed on them while they were all together, and they are all dead. And the Bible says that Job uh, rent his mantle, which was a sign of mourning, shaved his head, another sign of mourning, put ashes on his head, fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so Satan comes the next day to God, uh, or the next, whenever it was next, the next time to God, and God says, Hey, have you considered my servant Job? Uh, he's still doing well. And Satan says, well, here's the thing, life for life. Sure, you can take away stuff from a man and he'll still serve you, but a man will give anything for his life. You let me have his health and he will curse you to your face. God says you can have his health, but you may not kill him. So then Job gets boils from head to toe. He has these lesions, they're pustules. He is in constant 24-hour pain. He can't, you, you can't sit, you can't do anything without pain. He couldn't walk. Nothing without pain. He's in constant pain. And so he's there, and, and the Bible says he's, he's taking a, a pot shirt, which is like a piece of a clay pot, and he's scraping the, 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 the uh, lesions because they're itching and they're oozing, and, and he's just a mess. And he's putting dust on them to try to reduce some of the itching and the pain. And uh, his wife comes up and says, why don't you just curse God and die? God has done this to you. Just curse God and die. And Job says, you're, you're speaking like a foolish woman. Should we, not, should we receive good from the Lord and not receive evil? Should I rejoice and say, thank you, Lord, when he gives me the good, but then uh, d say, okay, God is no longer good when, when he allows evil? Am I entitled to good from God? Is that my right? And, this is, and then as, as he goes through the book, all of his, um, his miserable comforters, his, his friends who are... Who, who say, hey, in love, we're just going to tell you that you're sinning, and there's some sin in your life, and that's why God is bringing this into your life, because there's some sin. And Job says, look, I don't know about any sin. I haven't done anything. I, I don't know of anything. I'm not. And the only place where Job kind of goes wrong is that as his friends continue to berate him, he says, I have a right to get an answer from God, and I demand an answer from God, because if God was standing right in front of me, I would demand of him, how dare you do this to me because I'm righteous? I demand you tell these people that I am righteous, that I've done nothing wrong, and I want an explanation. And so uh, Job gets uh, this uh, discouragement in him that says, I have the right to an explanation, and I have the right to have God acknowledge that I have done nothing wrong here. Uh, and his friends, of course, are telling him, nope, it's not that. It's that you are sinning. You're sinning. God would only bring this upon a sinner. And at the end, as we've talked about before, God shows up. And effectively, Job 38, 40, 41, 42, God looks at Job and says, where were you when, when the earth was created? 
Where were you when the stars were hung in the, in, in the, the sky? Where were you when all of these things took place? Who holds back the waters from the land? Who uh, causes the animals to do what they do? If you've ever, I mean, studying animals is fascinating. They, they, they're instinctual, right? A, a, an, an animal, a, a bird hatches or whatever it is, and they know exactly where to go. Turtles hatch, and they immediately know, beeline it to the ocean. How, how do they do that, right? How do sea turtles know that? God says, do you know how? Because I do. I was there. I, I built it. I created it. I designed it. And at the end of it, Job just kind of puts his hand over his mouth and says, yep, I have no right to even question you. I have no right to question your decisions. I have no right to question your, your goodness. I have no right to question your order in things. You are justified regardless of my suffering. So what do we do with someone who has suffered? Well, we can't know. And this is, this is why um, comfort is a difficult thing sometimes. Because you look at someone and you say, hey, I, I just want to let you, I just want to remind you that God works all things together for good, right? Romans 8, 28. Or I just want to remind you that, that, that God has a plan in this. And, and it's true. But it's not necessarily, number one, it's not necessarily what they need to hear at that moment. Um, number two, it, it, it's, it seems shallow, but it's not. It's really not. The idea that God has a plan and that when something is going wrong, if God has chosen, like, like Jesus in the garden, he's about to go to the cross. The idea that Jesus, knowing that he's going to go to the cross, begins to actually resign his heart to that suffering and say, Lord, if this is suffering for your sake, then thank you for this suffering. If my child having cancer, if this is for your glory, then thank you that my child has cancer. And this is, this is the attitude that the Bible compels us to have. That, that if God's way is perfect. Now, when, it ta- when we talk about evil, there's a whole different layer to that, right? Cancer is something that is brought into the world by sin, but is, is uh, as, as far as we know, at least in medical science right now, um, kind of luck of the draw, unavoidable, right, type thing. Not the same with, why did my child get molested, right? This, or whatever the case may be. This is where there's another evil person involved. Once again, does that make it outside of God's control? No. But is God to blame? No, it's the evil person that did it. Because we live in a world of evil. And we make evil choices. And sometimes the bad things that happen to us are the natural consequences of our evil choices. Or, or, or our mistakes. Uh, last week was uh, a very disappointing uh, Wednesday night. Uh, my, my, my children have had colds and they were getting some ear infections and we watch them and whatnot. Well, my boy had a really strange one. I was gone all day last Wednesday and my wife texts me and says he's, he says he's in a lot of pain, but my boy is a tender spirit. So, you know, sometimes he, he squeals like a pig at just, you know, bumping into a wall or something. And, and so my... And it's very, very similar, uh, really. And it's, it's shrieking. So, so we're sitting there saying, okay, what's, what's valid, what's not, all that. And typically speaking, okay, you've got an ear infection. You've got a couple of days to figure it out where it gets red, it gets worse, it gets more pain, whatnot. Well, that night, he also had a cold and a cough. That night, he ruptured his eardrum. And we go to the doctor the next day to get an antibiotic for it. He checks it out, whatnot. And I just, I'm so frustrated with myself. Because here we had him lying in bed, you know, putting hot heat on his ear, whatnot, thinking that he was probably overblowing it, and he wasn't overblowing it, right? And, well, my son's 
ruptured eardrum. Would, if we'd have gotten him into the doctor that day, would it have made a difference considering how soon it ruptured? I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, because we only found out about it that morning, but the fact of the matter is, in my heart and mind, my son has a ruptured eardrum because of me hedging my bets a little bit, right? My choices affected someone else. And sometimes in life, our choices affect others. Uh, you, you just make a choice. You're not careful enough. Whatever it is, it affects others. I'm not going to blame God for that. I shouldn't blame God for that. And there's that layer too. There can be a layer of mistake, and then I'm angry at myself, but then I don't want to be angry at myself, so I might deflect my anger to God. And God is so gracious to handle that oftentimes and to not hold that against us uh, when we deflect our anger at Him for perhaps our own choices or the choices of other evil people. But at the end of the day, what God wants of us is for us to get to the point where we are so, we're walking with him so intimately, we're in fellowship with him so closely, we love him and he loves us, and we are in this relationship to where even when evil, terrible things happen, and I've done everything, you know, I'm walking with the Lord and whatnot, and I've not made the mistakes and all of those things, I can look at him and say, God, you be glorified. You're worth it. Whatever it is that you're trying to teach me or others. So you're, you're there at the, at the funeral of your child. And somebody hears the gospel and accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior at that funeral. And you say, I wonder if they never would have heard the gospel any other way than that my child died young. And now there's going to be someone else in glory because of this circumstance. Can I trust God that there was a reason? And then can I, in looking for the reason, highlight God more? Can I justify God? This is a prayer that I often pray for those that are sick, um, particularly if they're terminal. Um, prayer that they would have the faith to justify God in the midst of their suffering. To declare God's goodness in the midst of suffering. Because this is the power of the testimony of the Christian life. That the martyrs throughout the ages, for the last 2,000 years of history, as they've been beaten and as they've been bruised and as they've been burned at the stake and as their heads have been chopped off, they have done so praising the name of God. If you've ever seen that, that, that famous picture of, of the Christians in the Colosseum with the lions, and the lions are standing there watching, and they're all in a circle praying, what's the idea there? God, I'm about to be eaten by these lions because of my testimony for you. Thank you that I have been counted worthy to suffer for your sake. And this is the power of the testimony of, of, of the Christian life, is that we do recognize that God is in control. And he could remove us from that, but there's a reason not to. And whether it's for my growth or for the growth of someone else or so that I might be able to touch someone that otherwise may never be able to be touched, that maybe in those three weeks that my child is in the hospital before he dies, I had the chance to give the gospel to six nurses and two doctors, and now they've heard the gospel and a couple of them accepted it, where they may never have heard the gospel in any other way, and now they are going to be in heaven because my child was in the hospital for three weeks. Can we trust that? That's what prayer is not just, uh, it, it is intended to bring us there. Not just prayer as, a me, as an outlet for me to lift up those praises to God, but as also the means by which I get there. And that's what Jesus' prayer in the garden teaches us. Is that through that process of prayer, he aligned his heart with the heart of the Father, so that by the time he was finished praying, he was physically, emotionally, and spiritually prepared to glorify God in the day of his suffering. And again, that's not, when I'm counseling, that's not something I say to the parent while the parent's still in the hospital. Unless I know that their maturity level is of a, a, a spiritual maturity level of, of, of a level. Normally what I do is I grieve with them. 
The Bible says in Romans 12 that we are to weep with them that weep, rejoice with them that rejoice. So what do I do? I just grie- I grieve with them. I mourn with them. I comfort them. I love them. We justify God. And then, then we, we deal with some of these things on the other side of it. Not, not easy, though. And the, the clash between what we can call theory and practice in life, right? The Bible is a book of ideals. Now, it's not that it's not rooted in real life, but it, it teaches what is, what, what, what is as far as the reality of what God is. But then when that clashes with the struggles that we face every day, um, it's easier said than done, right? But this is where God wants us. And this is where we can be and ought to be uh, as we walk with him. Any other thoughts or questions on that? That's how to pray. Why pray? Page 7. And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth. And he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? And uh, we see the, the Holy Spirit being prominent in the, the, the answering of these prayers, the giving of these prayers. Uh, Matthew seven eleven says a similar thing. Philippians 4.19, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. James 1.17, Every good and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Uh, this is the other, it, when you talk about the example of a, a father and a child, if you can think of prayer that way, the Bible says that God loves you. If you, are, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've not placed your full faith and trust in His finished work to save you, you can't earn it, you can't deserve it, you're not worthy of it, Jesus did it, you're accepting that by faith. If you haven't done that, then you're not a child of God. Uh, the, the, the idea that everyone is a child of God, everyone is a creation of God, but when the Bible talks about the children of God, John 1.19 says, but as many as received Him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. The only ones that are children of God, as in God is their father, that relationship, are those who have accepted Christ as their savior. When you're there, the Bible says he treats you as a father. Now, if, you've, if you did not have a good father, I'm sorry that you can't relate to this. But the concept is this, that what a father ought to do is absolutely and abjectly love his children and desire to give his children good things. Now, as I mentioned before, my child comes up and asks for a good thing, and it is the propensity of my heart to make my child happy and want to give that good thing. But there's some things that I have to run through. Daddy, may I have a treat? How close are we to the next meal? How well did they do the last meal? Is this good for them? How much bad have they had today? Um, How well have they behaved? Uh, Maybe we have something bigger later. Um, the, all of these things run through my mind and then I assess whether or not I can and should give them this thing and then I, I do if I can because I love my children and I want to bless them. If we, being evil, in other words, being human and 
having all of our ulterior motives and being having grumpy days and all of those things, if we, even in the midst of all of our failures and fallibilities, know how to and desire to bless our children, how much more do you think God wants to bless you? How much more do you think God wants to give you good things? If you say, hey God, I, I need bread, is he going to give you a stone? No. No father would do that. If I asked for a fish, would he give him a serpent? No. No father would, would, would laughingly give their child something that will harm them when they ask for something that they need. That's, that's not what loving fathers do. And again, I, I apologize. When, when we talk about all of this relationship to the father, um, I've, especially when I'm at the jail, most of them cannot relate to anything I say about that. Because most of them have, no, they don't even have fathers, the majority of them, especially the, the females that are in, in jail. Um, and those that, that do, oftentimes they can't relate to having a loving father, especially if, it, if it's a recidivistic idea. You know, obviously there's people that are in for any number of reasons, and some of them have just fine parents and such. But if you can't relate to that, I'm, I'm sorry, and there's going to be a little bit more of a, of a curve for you to rewire your mind to what a father ought to be for their child. Which you should do. You should take everything that the Bible says about being a father and God is our father and you should rewire how you think of a father based upon that. But this same idea carries over. So God desires to give me things. And yet there are things that hinder. Maybe it's not his will, right? So if it's simply not my will that I give my child something, then the child doesn't get it. And then if it's not his will, then I need to trust as the child that, that because God loves me so much, I can trust that if it's not his will, then it's not what's best for me. Even if I think it's what's best for me or I know it's what's best for me, it's not what's best for me if, God, if it's not his will. Am I consuming it upon my own lust? Uh, am I just asking for this for entirely selfish reasons? If my child comes up to me and says, hey, dad, my sister's treat is there. Can I have it? Okay, so you're asking for me to take something away from your sister to give to you, no, right? You're not going to get that one. I'm not going to give you that request. Uh, that's, that's, that, that is a, an inappropriate request. You're not going to get it. Um, these sorts of things come into play. Sometimes we don't even know what we're missing. My, I come home and I have in my bag some treats that I got from somewhere. And I come home and my wife looks at me and says, while, while you've been gone, my, my children, the children have been tyrants. Or they, the, the, the children come up and I get my hugs and I say, okay, now all of you, go up and wash your hands and then come back to me. And they, I don't want to wash my hands, blah, blah, blah. And they start talking back to me. And at that point, I say, I wanted to bless them and now I can't. And so I just keep those things in my bag. And I eat them myself after they go to bed or whatever. And they don't even know what they missed. They're never even going to know what they missed because they, their attitude toward me was wrong. Sometimes I think we don't even know what we're missing. We, we, we want something and we are complaining to God. And God says, if you, just, if you just align yourself with me, I have good gifts for you. But we're just not doing it. We're not yielding. We're not obeying. We're not yielding. We are stubbornly doing it our own way. And God's got this amazing thing just over the hill for us. But he says, you've got to come to me first. The, uh, the, the, the principle I give here is that faith always precedes blessing. Faith comes before blessing. 
You have, to, you have to have the faith to obey God and then the blessing comes. And sometimes we are so stubborn to, to, and we're not trusting our Father enough to actually have the faith to do what He's asked us to do and we're demanding the blessing. But God, I don't want to do that. I want the blessing. And what we fail to remember is that the blessing comes at the end of the obedience. That sometimes God wants us to obey to get us to the point either where He can give us the blessing or sometimes He's testing our faith. I'll give you the blessing when you show me you have enough faith to obey me waiting for the blessing. This is all elements of who God is as a father and what prayer is about. Prayer is about us coming to him, us laying our requests before him, us um, unifying our hearts with his heart, unifying our will with his will, and um, um, as we we saw in, in this passage in Matthew, in the Spirit. We're praying in the Spirit, and He is answering us in the Spirit. And it's, it's not uncommon for believers to know the will of the Father through prayer, where uh, God answers back. And again, you're not necessarily audibly hearing things, voices from heaven and such, uh, but what you, are, what you are, are receiving is peace of God, confirmation, various people com- uh, receive communication from the Spirit in various ways. Um, I tend to receive communication from the Spirit, confirmation from the Spirit, uh, through uh, high levels of of peace and confidence in a decision. So if I'm praying over something and I bring it before the Lord and I'm seeking His will in something and uh, there is generally speaking an overwhelming uh, positive impression and a peace that comes over me when it is of the will of God. And I can identify that because I've spent enough time with Him, I've stilled my heart enough, I listen closely enough to identify when that comes about and when it does not. Uh, Various people uh, experience this in various ways. Um, But the idea is that as we're praying in the Spirit, God is answering us um, and He is guiding us in the way that we should go. But it's also an exercise of us yielding ourselves to the will of the Father. Why pray then? Because God loves us. He wants to give good gifts to us. He wants to bless us. And he 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 wants you to know His will. He's not you know, sitting up in heaven laughing as we're groping around in darkness wondering what his will is for us. He wants you to know. He wants you to have the good things. A parent does not, does not set aside good things for his children and then hope his children never figures it out, right? A parent gives his expectations and delights in being able to bless his children in the way he, his children want and he wants for them. But can't always do that, can you? Uh, because the children don't always cooperate. Finally, some warnings. Page 8. Actually, not finally. There's one more thing on prayer, too. Um, a general, t- uh, general suggested template. Uh, don't pray with unconfessed sin. Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. 1 Peter 3, 7 um, tells us that if husbands are not dwelling appropriately with their wives, their prayers can be hindered. The idea is simply an example that when we are walking out of fellowship with God and man, our prayers can be hindered. Um, Don't pray to be seen of men. Matthew 6, 5 and 6. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Now again, this doesn't mean public prayer is wrong, 
But what it means is if your motivation for praying is to sound godly, to look godly in the eyes of others, so that the whole object of your prayer is how can I sound good? How can I look good? How can I not mess up? How can I say things in a godly way? Uh, God's not interested in those prayers. He, that, that is not prayer. That is you exhibiting yourself for others. And that's your reward. You get no reward from God. There's no, not going to be any answer from God because all you're doing is, is performing. And performing is not prayer. So the exhortation is pray in secret. Don't tell anyone you're praying. Now, of course, public prayers are public prayers, right? You're leading others in prayer. doesn't mean that that's wrong. But if you're praying in public, still pray to God, not to the people that are listening. Uh, some pastors, they prayer preach. Their prayers are just more preaching and teaching the congregation through prayer. That's not prayer. That's preaching. That's teaching. Which is fine if they want to do that, but they're not actually praying. Because prayer is about you and God. And your reward is nothing more than that you're seen of men if you're just praying to be seen of men. Avoid vain repetition. This is kind of what got us off track last week, right? Uh, But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions, as the heathen do. For they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be ye not therefore like unto them. For your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. We're not praying to inform God of our needs. And the idea of praying without ceasing is not vain repetition. Vain means empty. So empty repetition versus prayer, unceasing prayer. Unceasing prayer is there's a desire of my heart and I am regularly bringing it before God. Vain repetition is I'm going to invoke the same words over and over and over again. And I believe that these explicit words are actually, there's some power behind these words themselves. Whether or not you're in a spirit of prayer or not, you're just invoking words. You're just saying words. And those words you think are the power rather than actual prayer. That's vain repetition. And the Bible says that it is, um, there's nothing, it's empty. It is, there's, it's powerless. You're not trying to inform God of your needs. That's not what prayer is about. God knows what you need. Don't pray to consume upon your own lust. We talked about that one in James 4, uh, verses 1 through 3. That if you pray to consume upon your own lusts, you are praying wrongly. Um, and you will not receive the things that you ask. On page 9, the last little bit here. A simple template for balanced prayer. These are the different elements of prayer that we see in the Bible. This is the different genres of prayer that we see in the Bible. Uh, you can see it's kind of a, a little bit of a, what are those called, acronyms? Uh, ACTSI, there. Um, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, intercession. And then I do add imprecatory there. Um, so adoration, praising God through prayer. We see all throughout the scriptures that people just get down on their knees to praise God. I hope that if you're... If you're um, you're, you're spending time in prayer, that you're spending time extolling God's virtue. Um, we see it all throughout the scriptures that the men of God extolled God's virtues in prayer. Confession. This is, and not necessarily this order. It's only in this order because it um, makes sense with the acronym. Although I could do CATSI, and that way confession would be first. Confession should probably be first. Um, making sure that you're, you're right with God, confessing your sin before God. Um, that should be first. But also in Daniel 9, the example I give you here, Daniel's confessing the sins of his people. He is going before the Lord and saying, Lord, we have sinned. Forgive us as your people for our sins. Um, he's interceding there. Intercession. Um, there's sort of an intercession confession there. Thanksgiving. If you are asking God for things, don't forget to thank him when you get them. 
That's a really important thing. <laughs> we, uh, uh, we, we, we regularly ask God for things. And one of the blessings of Thanksgiving is that when you're, when you're seeking to thank him, then you're also looking for the answers. In other words, um, sometimes God answers our prayers and we don't even know. Because we're not really looking for it. It's just I pray something, I want something, and then I move on with life. And the thing comes about, maybe not in the way I expected, but I didn't even see it because I wasn't looking for it. But if, I'm, uh, if I have a heart of thanksgiving, then I'm looking for the things that the Lord has brought about. And then I might find that God is answering my prayers, maybe not in ways I'm expecting, but they actually are coming to pass. And uh, it also helps me have more faith in, in prayer because I'm seeing the things come to pass. I'm sorry I didn't give you one for supplication. Uh, asking for the things you need, it's, it's everywhere as well, right? We could just use the model prayer there if you want. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Um, asking for the things you need. Supplication. Intercession. Praying for others. Jesus prays for us in John 17. Um, I give you that as the model there. And then imprecatory prayers. Um, imprecatory prayers are prayers that we see in the Psalms where uh, David or the psalmist is, is praying that God would destroy people. That he would uh, cause them to be childless, that, that, their, that their lineage would, would pass from the earth, that they would you know, be, be destroyed in all sorts of horrible, terrible ways. And the point of imprecatory prayers is not that I'm an angry guy and God's going to acknowledge my, my anger and allow me to stew in my anger. It's exactly the opposite. It is I am an angry guy because someone has done something wrong. Someone has, has someone, there's an injustice going on. But instead of working out my anger myself, I am praying and asking God to avenge. God to be the, avenge, the avenger. And then through that process of imprecatory prayer, I can actually reconcile in my heart the violence that I want to do to this person with the reality that I should not do it. And I can leave it with God and say, God, I'm trusting you to do the violence that I won't do because I'm trusting you. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. So it's more an opportunity for me to release it by laying it at God's feet and saying, God, I know that you're just and that's unjust, which means I know you're going to deal with this. And then you leave it and, and then you give him some ideas about how you want, to, want it to be dealt with, right? Is effectively what David is doing. Um, and, and then it's up to God how he actually wants to do it. And you can trust God with that because God knows better than you do, right? Uh, but imprecatory prayer is kind of the, 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 the prayer uh, means by which that I can lay my feelings before God and then the, those feelings that would work themselves out through unrighteousness, I can lay before him and say, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to leave it in your hands and then I can leave it. If I continue to stew on it, then um, we'll talk about that when we get to anger and forgiveness. Um, questions on prayer or, or, or anything else on prayer? I went through just about every relevant passage in the New Testament on prayer in this. Um, there's a, as far as examples of prayer, the Old Testament is really where the great examples of prayer are. If you want to learn better how to pray, the spirit of prayer, read the Old Testament. Um, but as far as what, you know, what, what to pray, how to pray, why to pray, the New Testament teaching on it, I've given you every, every relevant passage um, on it in the scriptures. <coughs> The need for the Bible, uh, Bible reading. So the last two things here, and we've got, what, 30 minutes? Um, the, uh, so the, the second half of this class, starting with prayer, is supposed to be practical. I gave you all of the, kind of the, 
the theological stuff, justification and sanctification and assurance and the spirit and the flesh. The rest of this is supposed to be how does this touch your daily life? And prayer is an important part of that. Prayer is power. There is no power outside of prayer. We don't pray enough in the church. But also, it's important, the other elements of, uh, the other exercises unto godliness that the Bible teaches about that are important is uh, knowing your Bible and assembling with the saints. And so these are the other two things that I introduced to you here. Uh, again, I'll probably do this in semi-survey fashion. Um, but I give you first the need for the Bible. And the idea there being, wh- why? Why, is the, why do we have the Bible and why is it so important? Um, Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Yea, the much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. The Bible says you conform yourself to God's expectations, and there is blessing to be found. This is where blessing is found. This is where reward is found. And it is more precious than gold. It doesn't mean that, that you'll get gold by following the word of God. It's not a health and wealth message. But the idea is this, that, you, that, that if you're rightly adjusted to an understanding of God and his word, then the word of God will become more important to you than anything in this life. Because you will recognize just how valuable it is that if, if we're living life, right, and this, this life we're navigating and we're, we're walking through life just doing what we're doing, and it, life can get confusing, right? Life can get hard. What happens when my child has cancer? What happens when bad things happen to good people? What happens when I don't know what, what to do next? And if you have a manual for life, The one who created you saying, this is how I created you, this is how I designed you, and this is how you function, then that manual is going to become the most important thing. Has to be the most important thing. When something's broken, this is going to tell me how to fix it. When something is off, this is going to tell me how to get it right. When something's not working up to efficiency, this is going to tell me how to make it more efficient. The Bible says he has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness in this book. And if we trust that, which is one of the presuppositions of our courses, right? That, that the Bible is a trustworthy book and that the Bible is sufficient. If we trust that, then this book ought to become indispensable to us. And that's what the Bible says. It testifies of itself that it is more precious than gold. That if we have the choice between money and the Bible, the Bible ought to be our choice. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, Psalm 119, 105, and a light unto my path. The image there is that we, uh, that we, we, we are walking and we're walking in general darkness, not knowing what steps we ought to take. But then the word of God becomes the light and it shines the light. And if, we're, if we are looking at life through the lens of the Bible, it's going to tell us how to properly adjust to life. Now, it's not going to tell me should I buy the house or not. That's where prayer in the spirit of God comes in. But it is going to tell me how to properly adjust myself, position myself to life, how to think about things. How to, how, to, uh, how to consider the life that we're living, and then I'm taking steps based upon what the book is telling me. If it says it in the book, I'm going to believe it. And so again, this is why we stand where we stand, uh, conservative Christians, on a lot of issues. 
As, as culture goes one way and conservative Christianity goes the other way, that division, they say, well, why can't you just go our way? Why can't you just be enlightened? Well, because the light that I'm walking in is showing me a path, and the path that culture is going down is the path of destruction. And that's what the light tells me. They're walking in darkness. They say, I don't see any destruction. Of course you don't see any destruction. You don't have any light. But I have a light, and the light is telling me that this is the path. And so even though everything tells me uh, in culture that this is the way to go and, and follow the crowd, whatever it might be, I'm going to go the way the light tells me is safe. And, and that's the word of God. That's the light. That's the lamp. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll leave the rest of those to you. That's the need for the Bible. The purpose of the Bible, I think, is next. I, I lost my staple here, so I hope these, I guess I've got page numbers. So, yep, page 11. The purpose of the Bible. To reveal reality to man. How did we get here? Why are we here? Who is God? What does he expect? What happens if I reject him? The whole idea that God has revealed himself. You say, if there is a God, and he is going to he is going to, to give me heaven or hell based upon his expectations, then he better give me his expectations, right? And if, if he expects me to live a certain way, then he better tell me what that is. I'm a bad parent if I punish my children for things that they don't know they're doing wrong. If I come home one day and I have never told my child, you may not move that chair, if, if, and they move a chair, and I've never told them that those chairs need to stay where they are, I would be a bad parent if, because I didn't want the chair moved, I punished them for something they did not know they could not do. That is bad parenting. God would be a very bad God if he punished us for things he did not tell us he expected, or if he held us to a standard that he, he, he did not inform us of. But he has not done that. And that's why the book is so important. Because the big questions in life, the stuff that everyone struggles with, do I have a purpose in life? Why am I here? What good is any of this? Who is God? What does he expect from me? The Bible answers these questions, right? And we kind of covered that in our intro, intro class. Um, the effect of obeying the Bible. Blessing. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. When uh, you, um, when you uh, winnow or uh, uh, sift wheat, right, you... Well, we don't anymore, but now it's a machine that does it, right? But you, you, you would throw it in the air and you separate the chaff from the actual wheat. And then as you're throwing it in the air, you're threshing that wheat. It would blow away. And maybe you'd have kind of something like a, a grate, right? Which would allow the chaff to fall through and the wheat would stay. And those sorts of, of processes. He says that the ungodly are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. They're blown in every direction. They have no stability. And they will not stand. In the day of judgment, they will just burn up. Just like that's all chaff is good for. Um, the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The effect of obeying the Bible is there will be divine blessing. Does that mean health, wealth, and happiness all the time? It does not. The Bible does not promise that. But it does promise divine blessing. Uh, God's watch care in this life, so that you know that you are in his will, even if that will is, is asking of you great or, or difficult things like Job. And then in the life to come, reward and blessing. Um, life success. 
Now again, this is not always material success, but this is that you will be well adjusted in life. And then uh, what, what we would see based on this is all things being equal, if the government stays out of my way and evil people stay out of my way, then living by the book is a, is a tremendous template for a successful life. Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Um, you'll find that moral people, whether or not they believe in Jesus Christ to be saved, or whatever the case may be, we, whether you want to talk about the Mormons or, uh, or, or whoever, uh, moral people tend to have good lives. Right? They, they, they avoid a lot of the pitfalls and problems that a lot of other people get themselves into. They don't become alcoholics and they don't get themselves into heavy amounts of debt and they, they don't, uh, so, and so that avoids many of the problems, interpersonal problems in life. And so there is a general understanding of, of success that comes from being moral. And the idea being that the Word of God is, even, even for the unbeliever, to whatever degree the unbeliever aligns himself with the principles of the morals of this book. So though we would not believe, according to the Bible, that Orthodox Jews are, are believers because they've rejected Jesus Christ, and Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, yet they are very moral people, and with that morality comes success. It, 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 it reduces the friction of life that comes from all of the problems that come with, with the mistakes of of sin, right? Uh, so the Bible does say that life success is a effect of obeying it. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? Psalm nineteen nine by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Great peace have they. Psalm one nineteen one sixty five which uh, which love thy law and nothing shall offend them. That means to cause them to stumble. Protection. Proverbs chapter six talks about protecting that the son will be protected from. Uh, the evil woman from making wrong choices through listening to the Proverbs, the wisdom of their father and mother, and particularly, as we see it here, the wisdom of the Scriptures. Um, understanding and discernment. The Bible tells us that the Word of God entering into our hearts gives us light. As we believe the Word of God, it properly adjusts us to life as it's meant to be lived. If you go through life rejecting the tenets of the Word of God, you are going through life uh, resisting the way it's designed. Can life still function in complete resistance to its design? Yes. But is there going to be friction and trouble and frustration and sorrow? Yes. As we get farther and farther away from the tenets... Now, we've not been in a society that's uh, significantly Christian in a long time, but we have had a Judeo-Christian culture that has undergirt society for a long time. And that Judeo-Christian culture has created a general success in this nation as there's been integrity and work ethic and all of these things. And as culture degrades from that, you're going to see more and more frustration. Why are mental illnesses going through the roof today? Well, as we get away from God's design, our bodies and minds are, are literally fighting against us. They are breaking down because we are operating our bodies entirely outside of design. If I operate a machine beyond threshold all the time, it's going to 
it's going to have problems. It's going to wear faster. It's going to, it's going to be under stress. It's under stresses it's not designed to be under because you're not following the manual. We are in a society that is living under stresses that they're not designed to live under. And those stresses come from them not, not, not just ignoring the Word of God, but, but more or less resisting the Word of God. If the Bible says it, they want to do the exact opposite. So it is absolutely little wonder that, our, our, that the people in our society are, are, are just a mess. That society is a mess. Why? Well, because they're not living by the manual. They're doing the exact opposite of what the manual says. And even if they do not believe Jesus to be the Son of God and that He died on the cross for them, if they were to open this book and to obey a few things in this book, they'd find success. And you'll find that no matter what culture, whether they regard the Word of God or not, the cultures that are successful and the people that are successful are those who have co-opted biblical principles. And they're living by biblical principles, even if they don't acknowledge it. Because that's where success comes from. The neglect of the Bible darkens understanding. Page 13. Uh, and then it brings all manner of evil. When the Bible is neglected, the Bible says, even among believers, if we neglect the Bible, so to whatever degree believers have rejected the Word of God, we have a lot of churches today that are ordaining women ministers and sodomite ministers and these sorts of things, even though the Bible makes these things clear that women are not to be ministers and, uh, and, and sodomy is a sin and these sorts of things. Um, as they reject the Word of God, even if they are believers, which you, know, you would have to at some point wonder, but, uh, but even if they are believers, they're going to be judged with darkness. There's going to be a darkness. In other words, when God says, if you know my word and you knowingly reject my word, there is a natural darkness so that you, you become blind to certain elements of your own choices. Um, Romans chapter 1, 21 and 22 talks about this, that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. They became vain in their imaginations and their hearts were darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Then God gives them up to uncleanness. So in that they have chosen to darken their own hearts, or have, have chosen to excuse me, be vain in their own imaginations and reject the word of God, then their hearts are darkened. They are, they are judged with darkness. And then all manner of evil is the end result of it. If I'm willing to reject this part of God's word, then it's only a matter of time before I'm willing to reject this part of God's word too. And it's just, it's down a path. Well, no, that would never happen. We, we draw a line here. Those things are just cultural. Those things are, are, are important. Those lines are just going to keep, if, if the word of God is subject to our judgment and our questioning, then, um, then there, it's just a matter of time before none of it matters anymore. And then the church. And I, I'll try to finish this up, and we'll just be, be here by the end of this week. We'll have two weeks left. So um, I'll have to make some decisions about which two things I want to cover. I may just give you the material for uh, Christians and material possessions, and I think I'd like to talk about forgiveness and anger and the Christian family as our last two topics, and we'll just have to miss a couple. Uh, I apologize for that. Um, the design of the church. There are many different analogies that the Bible gives about the church. The Bible calls the church a family, um, a tight-knit group of people who love and protect and serve one another. This is why um, Paul and, and John and such call people in the church their children, and they call them brothers and sisters, uh, so much so that one of, the early, one of the early charges levied against the church was that they were incestuous. 
because they called each other brother and sister. And this is one of the attempts that people would make in Rome when they were trying to persecute the Christians to say we need to get this blight out of our society because they're all incestuous because they'd call each other brother and sister and then they'd marry one another. But they weren't actually blood brother and sister. They were just all a part of what we call the family of God because God is our father. We all have the same father. Um, Ephesians 3.15 talks about the whole family in heaven and earth. James 2.15 says, If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, if your, if your brother or sister in Christ does not have food and you withhold it from them, your, your, your faith is dead, is the idea there. The, the church is also called a building, a structure resting upon a foundation and built up for protection and for purpose. So Ephesians 2, verses 19 and 20, say that we are fellow citizens of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, And Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. So the idea is that we are a building. The church is a building. And the foundation of this building is the apostles and prophets, which the apostles and prophets is the Bible, right? The Old Testament was written by the prophets. The New Testament was written by the apostles. The apostles and prophets, the foundation for the church, are the apostles and prophets. Jesus is the cornerstone. Uh, In our day, of course, with prefab, that's not as important. But in the days where prefab wasn't a thing, you had to make a perfect cornerstone, a perfect 90-degree angle, because you would, you would uh, position every rock in the foundation relative to that cornerstone. And if the cornerstone was not square, then uh, you know, angles being what they are, you're going to be way off by the time you get to the other end of that building. So you have to have a square cornerstone to make sure that every other rock is going to be square. Jesus is that perfect cornerstone. He is the perfect template. The apostles and prophets then exemplified that template through the scriptures, uh, telling us how the foundation of the church is laid, and then the church is built on top of that foundation. Um, 1 Timothy 3.15 calls the church the house of God. If I tarry long, thou mayest know how thou ought to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. So we're called a building. We're called a family. And the most uh, clear in the scripture is the idea of a body, a combination of individual parts working together toward a unified direction. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, the Bible says, He hath put all things under his feet and given them him to be head, that's Jesus, is the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And then Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure um, of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So the church is called a body. And we're going to come back to this idea um, in in a little bit. Um, We'll have to see. Yeah. I'll probably skip a little bit of this, but and then the Bible is also, or the church is also called a nation, as in we are a, a, a nation of called out people, and we're we're kind of not a physical nation, but we are a a, a, a people group in and of ourselves. Um, we already talked about the foundation there from Ephesians two nineteen and twenty on page fifteen. I give you qualified leadership here. The Bible talks about apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. We know that the apostles and the prophets form the foundation. So we have evangelists, pastors, and teachers um, that are a part of the actual building of Christ. And then I give you the qualifications of pastors as given in 1 Timothy 3. Titus talks about it as well, but um, the qualifications of a pastor are quite clear. 
and they're given there. You ought to look for that when you when you uh, get into a church. You ought to look for a church that has qualified pastoral leadership. Uh, the essence of the church is that we are a body. If you're if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you're a part of uh, of the body, and you join yourself to a local body so that you can serve the body. You are not saved just to be your own person. You are saved to be a small part of a much larger whole, to function for the benefit of the body and particularly for the benefit of the head, who is Christ. So Romans 12 talks about this. Paul says, um, he beseeches us that we would present our bodies a living sacrifice. This is page 16. Um, He says in verse 4, For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. We exist to serve each other. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy, and ministry, and then he talks about some of the gifts. Verse 10, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another, preferring one another to those that are outside of the body. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about it as well. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we're baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, bond or free, we've been made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I'm not the hand, I'm not of the body, is, there, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I'm not the eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole body were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? So as we talk about local church, God leads you to a church, a church that he wants you to attend, and you are there to function. You're not there to sit. You're not there to be a wart on the body of Christ. You are there to function. Every part of the body has a function. And when one part of the body is not functioning, Oftentimes, the whole body is affected, huh? If my knee hurts, it's not just my knee now. It's my leg that's having to bear the burden. It's the other knee that's having to bear the burden. Uh, if my, if my uh, um, Achilles is hurting or my heel is hurting, it can affect my back. If, my, if I have an ear infection, it can affect my, my, my ability to, um, to, to stand, right? It can make me dizzy because my balance is in the ear. So the, the idea is that you are a part of a bigger whole and that God has a, por- a, a part for you to play in the church. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you are a part. God has gifted you to function. And if you're not in a church, then that church is lacking something. That, that the elbow's missing. Or the hand is missing. Or the leg is missing from that church because you're not there to supply the need that God has designed you to supply. But we don't all have the same need. So you say, well, but I'm not a good teacher. Or I don't lead music. Well, okay, so you're not a mouth or a hand. Maybe you're an eye. Maybe you're a nose. Maybe you're something that doesn't get a lot of credit. You know, maybe you're a fingernail. Or maybe you're you know, a kidney. Things that we don't think about often but are still you kind of notice if they're not there, right? Maybe you're something that is not as out front, but God needs you there anyway. And you can't say that you're not of the body just because you're not a part that gets a lot of credit for stuff. That little fluid in the ear that gives us balance doesn't get a lot of credit, but you know if it's gone wrong because you're, you're dizzy. 
the Bible says that if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you are a part of the body and you have a part to play. And all of this, to, and, and he talks about if one member suffers, all of them suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice. We're not competing with one another. We're helping one another. When somebody in the church is struggling, that struggle touches the whole church because he's not able to be everything he can be for the body. If I've got a sore leg, that, that affects the whole body. And it's the same idea. Um, the purpose of the church, as we move on, just to get through this in the time that we have, the purpose of the church is to stabilize, to train you for the work of the ministry. It, it, it's, it's a blessing that you're all here. One of the things I always regret about these classes is to whatever degree you've not heard this stuff before, if you're in church, that means the church is not doing its job. Because the whole point of the church is that you would be stable in sound doctrine and trained so that you know this stuff so that you can go out and you can use it in the world. The church is a place to stand for truth, to live for truth, to proclaim truth, to stabilize the saints. And if, you, uh, if, 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 if you're walking around and, and people ask you questions and you don't know the answers and, and you're, you struggle to understand how to answer the, the things that have to do with uh, the, the troubles you know, that, that society is going through right now, and simply put, when somebody questions you, well, why do you believe this? Why do you believe that? Why do you think this way? Why, why do you people do that? And you have no answers? Um, it's because the church is not doing what it's supposed to do. That's the function of the church. Uh, and and God, God forbid that this should become a better church to you than your church, but, but uh, it, it, it might be. Um, and that's not what God designed. The, the church is designed to stabilize and train the saints for the work of the ministry. This church is designed to stand for truth, to be that bulwark that doesn't move, that when society and culture says we're going this way, the church says we aren't. And the church is a stabilizing force to stand for truth, to not change. And again, we talked last week, it doesn't mean our methods don't necessarily change, but it means our doctrine stays the same. We don't change because we're, 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 we're drawing from a book that doesn't change. Um... Let's see, that's 18, 19. 19 is nothing. 20. The commands of the, to, to the church. We are commanded to assemble. Hebrews 10.25 Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. God has designed us to assemble. To encourage one another. The Bible says iron sharpens iron. We need to be among others. So the, the idea that I describe is like the, the week as it stands is kind of like the desert. You go out into the world, you're dealing with believers and unbelievers alike. Maybe you get along with your coworkers, maybe you don't. But you have to be kind and you have to be generous and you have to love the world and love your enemy and all of this. And then you get to go to church on Sunday and be among friends. You get to drink at the oasis of those who are like-minded and then that recharges you to go back into the week. You get to come together, lick your wounds, get band-aids, Find someone who loves you, who will encourage you in the Lord, who will tell you to keep up the good work and learn something about the Word of God, learn how to be a better husband and father and whatever, and then you go back out into the world and you do it all over again. We ought to assemble. Fellowship. Um, 2 Corinthians 6, 11-18 is what I give you there. We, you ought to, the Bible says in verse 16, we actually read this last week when we were talking about music, 
Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? It doesn't mean that you can't have any unbelieving friends, but the fact of the matter is this. If you're living out a proper life, and if your unbelieving friend is not interested, and, and uh, if, if they are contrary to the light, then there's going to be a, a, a very important and big part of your life that, you, that is absolutely unrelatable between you and them. It's um, kind of the idea, when my, when my wife and I were dating, um, we knew each other very well spiritually. And at that point, we actually knew each other spiritually before we kind of knew each other personality-wise. And so when I went to China, we were kind of still on that spiritual level. But when I went to China, I was on a missions trip, and we were kind of underground, so we couldn't talk about the Bible. And it became apparent very quickly that if you cut out the Bible part of our conversation, we have nothing to talk about. We don't know anything else about each other. Uh, this was very early on in our relationship. It's kind of like that, but the other way around. When, 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 when your friends, your acquaintances, your friends, the people you interact with, when they're unbelievers, if the Word of God is as important to you as it ought to be, then there's going to be an entire, a huge portion of your life that is just completely unrelatable. You can't sit down with them and say, let me tell you what God did in my life this week and, and overflow with how your prayers were answered and God did these things. Uh, you can do that, but they'll just look at you like, this is, why do I care? <laughs> I don't believe that stuff. And to that degree, church becomes a place where you can go and you can say, hey, you were praying for me. We were praying for this. God answered that prayer and we can rejoice together. We can relate together in a whole new way and in the most deep, foundational, fundamental ways of life. This is why church is important. And then accountability. Um, Matthew 18 talks about church discipline and accountability. I won't read that. But the, uh, the idea is this. Um, that God tells us that we ought to... Um, and I apologize here. Oh, no. no never mind. It's, it's together. The Bible tells us that we are to hold each other accountable to the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 5 um, talks about... Um, withholding fellowship from those who claim to be believers but are walking contrary to sound doctrine. 1 Corinthians 6 says don't take a believer to court. That it would be far better for you to even find the, the, the least qualified person in the church and they would be more qualified to, arbiter, to be the arbiter between you and a brother in Christ than some unbelieving judge because the unbelieving judge is not going to factor the expectations of the scriptures into these legal proceedings. So it says don't take a brother to court. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And again, all of this is about accountability one with another. That it, This is the church's business. This is the church's business. And he says, yeah, far better than even taking him before your brother in a, in a case, why not just eat it? Just accept the wrong and just move on with life and forgive them. Why not just rather be defrauded by them than to, um, than to demand what is right, rightfully yours um, and so there's some interpersonal, some deep interpersonal lessons there. Galatians chapter 6, also. If a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, those that have not been overtaken, restore him. That we don't cast him out into the outer darkness, we, re, we, we seek to restore him. And then also the Bible says that with, with the church and assembly comes spiritual power. James five fourteen through 16. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. 
the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We don't see this much in large contingencies of the church today. I don't know what to make of it. I don't quite know what to do about it. But we don't see people going to their elders. Being, I, actually, I had a church where that happened growing up. I don't remember the results um, of that anointing with oil and the elders praying over them. But it's something that the Bible tells us to do, so maybe we should be doing it more often uh, with those that are sick among us. The Bible does say that there's spiritual power when the church assembles together and the elders come together to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. So, yes, sir. Look, at, look at that. That is precision there, right? I, uh, and, 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 and we started a minute late, so I'm, I'm entitled. Um, actually, I think it was more than a minute late, about eight minutes late. But, uh, but yeah, so um, that, that's everything about prayer. I give you more, of course. On the, 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 the point is this. If you want to talk about the basic exercises of the Christian life that will bring you to growth and maturity, it is read your Bible, pray, and go to church. Read your Bible, pray, go to church. Those are not just arbitrary. We don't tell people to go to church. Well, I don't tell people to go to church because I want money in the offering plate. Right? That is not the point. The point is you need to be in church, not because we need to pay our bills. You need to be in church because that's the place where there's power, where there's fellowship, where there's accountability. It's where God wants you. And um, that's the point. Why, why do we say read your Bible every day? Not because we're trying to constrain you, but because the Bible is the source of life. Why pray? Because prayer is how you, how you communicate with God, how he communicates to you. It is how you get things. It is how you uh, understand his will. It is how you, 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 it's how you live. And uh, that's why it's important. Next week we'll make some hard decisions about what to cut and what not to. Um, Thank you for your time. As always, the music is there if anyone is interested in such things. And we'll see you next week.